Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, and I'm joined as always by the Michael to my buddy, the elf, Brandon. <laughs> you know what's funny is I've never seen that movie fully. Oh, dude. <laughs> yeah. How can that possibly be? I just, it, I don't know. I guess a. Uh, Holiday movies, Christmas movies, and that aren't necessarily my thing. And Will Ferrell's, he's I guess all right. You, but, you know. I guess you're never sitting in a uh, hotel room in Huron, South Dakota, flipping around, you know, cable channels and seeing, oh, it's the Buddy the Elf Marathon. They're <laughs> playing it back to back for like four straight days. And I think I'll just keep watching it over and over. So it's like the new A Christmas Story. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's It's <laughs> the same for sure. They just play it over and over. It's it's a family favorite, buddy. I don't buddy. Know, I'll, I'll have to check it out. You should. Well, as you already know, because we've been communicating about this, it looks like I will not be spending the weekend sitting in a hotel in Huron, South Dakota, because uh, after eight straight weekends of hunting, my dog has a flat tire. Oh, hopefully it's not something serious. No, it's just um, on our last trip to South Dakota two weekends ago, he came up lame in one foot and he he had a big sore between two of his pads and a cut on one of his pads. So it was pretty, his left front foot was pretty beat up. Actually, what you do in those cases, I super glued his pad back together Yikes. And he kept hunting, but he was favoring it. By the time he got home, he was in a lot of pain. So last weekend, uh, we went to Wisconsin. Courtney and I went to Wisconsin and hung out with my cousin and her husband. And he and I did a bunch of hunting. Uh, Crosby spent most of the weekend in their house, actually. he I let him retrieve a couple ducks because that's not too hard on the pad, you know, just swimming in a lake. Sure. Um, but he stayed home from the pheasant hunting and... Then when we got home, I put him in a cone. He's been a cone all week, and I thought, okay, it's going to be all better. We'll be set to go. And then yesterday, to test it out, I took him on a walk just for about one mile. And by last night, his uh, he had a toe. He has a toe like right where the the toenail meets the the pad. It's just all swollen, and when I touch it, he yelps. So, yeah, this is not a dog who can be uh, pounding through cattails in South Dakota. Well, I'm pulling for him. I really hope Crosby gets better soon because that kind of thing. Thanks, man. I think he will, and hopefully we'll get back out there. It's always a bummer to cancel a hunting trip, but, you know, I can't really complain after eight straight weekends of hunting. Exactly. And, week, week, <laughs> and there's there's some more important things, too, so taking care of the dog week, is definitely nine, high he, up there. Yeah. So speaking of hunting, uh, we have a we have a date on the calendar to get you out after some fezzies. We do just uh, under two weeks from today, so this should be fun. How are you feeling about that, buddy? I mean, nervous, but looking forward to it. Uh well, Brandon. Um, you know, as I as, as I already mentioned, uh, when you and I did our just the two of us chatting the last episode. Uh, I had been in Marion, Iowa, and I spoke at a Lutheran church. Uh, the title of my talk was The God of Wild Places, which is actually uh, a book I'm working on right now, the working title of a book. 
And so today, this is the audio of that talk I gave. Um, it was, you know, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I don't know, the lecture I think I gave for about an hour, and then there was some Q&A at the end. So I hope uh, if you, you know, like this podcast and like my material, this is not uh, a, the traditional interview format. This is just me monologuing and then some Q&A at the end, but might give you a little bit of a sense of the kind of stuff I'm working on and thinking about these days. And uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. And you know the best present you could give me, listeners out there? Give a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, come on. Pump up, get our review numbers up a little bit. We'd love, I'd love it. That'd be, that'd be the best Christmas present you could give, but. Heck, you can uh, Spotify yeah. too. <laughs> oh yeah. Can, yeah, you can definitely rate it right on Spotify. Can you leave a review also on Spotify? Yes, you can. Okay. That just goes to show you I'm stuck in my old technology of Apple podcasts. Uh, yeah, we'd love it. Um, so Enjoy. I hope you're all having a great holiday season. Brandon and I will be back with you in another couple of weeks with a new episode. Here is my talk that I gave uh, a couple of weeks ago at Lutheran Church of the Redeemer in Marion, Iowa. Enjoy. I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. I've had a great time already uh, hanging out with your pastors and with some of the kids in the youth group. Uh, the fact that there are kids here to hear a one-hour theology lecture is uh, some kind of torture or discipline. <laughs> Obviously, you kids have done something terribly wrong to deserve this. No, I'll try to keep it interesting. I will reiterate what Pastor Jeff said. Uh, I, don't, I have a hard time sitting and listening to somebody else talk for an hour. Like, I don't think I would listen to myself talk for an hour without getting up, moving around. I'd be like, oh, I got to get more coffee. Uh, I'm not offended at all. If you want to go get popcorn, coffee, move around, stand up instead of sit and listen. Um, so make yourself comfortable. Uh, okay, well, I was, I was an angry young man, which... You might not, when you see these, these were my headshots when I was a youth pastor in the late 90s. The second one was when I shaved my head because I dared my youth group to raise money for uh, the 30-hour famine with World Vision, and it never came back. That was the first time I shaved my head. <laughs> that was probably a mistake in retrospect. Um, but I was an angry, angry young man in, uh, when I was about 30 years old. Um, and I was in a rough, I was in a bad marriage and was not very confident in who I was. And like a lot of people who struggle with self-confidence, I, you know, took that out on other people. I, I came across as overly confident. I compensated for my own lack of self-confidence by coming across as arrogant with other people. There was one particular night when uh, we had a youth committee that met the first Tuesday of the month, and it was composed of parents and uh, me, the youth pastor of this church in the Twin Cities. And, you know, we would meet and we would plan the junior high lock-in or we would plan summer camp or whatever, and they were kind of there to help me. Um, and something, 
I don't, I honestly don't even remember what it was, what exactly it was that caused me to explode in front of these parents on that Tuesday night. But I remember exploding in anger. It's embarrassing now to even think about. Uh, But the chair and the vice chair, the chair of the committee was a dad named Doug, and the vice chair was a mom named Linda. They both had kids in the youth group. And they adjourned the meeting, and they walked me to my car to try to calm me down. Now, of course, what was going on for me looking back now as a 54-year-old looking back to myself at 30 was there was a lot of other stuff going on that was unresolved, that I was unwilling to admit to myself that was going wrong in my life. And so I was trying to put on a facade that everything was okay. I was 30 years old. I had a great job. I was writing my first book. My first kid was on the way. My marriage was perfect because, of course, every pastor's marriage is perfect. I'm seeing, I'm seeing yeah, <laughs> a lot of nodding over here. Uh, and Doug called me the next day, and he said, let's go get coffee. So I went out to coffee with him. Didn't really know him. Just a nice parishioner. He'd, he'd been a part of my life because he was on the deacon committee when I was in seminary, and they kind of supported any any person from the church who went through seminary, and then he was now on the youth committee when I was the youth pastor. And he said, uh, he said, I think you have anger issues. And, yeah. And then he said, I too have anger issues. And he started to reveal to me in a, in a very vulnerable way how he had um, grown up in a family with a very abusive father and that he had gone to college and gotten involved in drugs and alcohol and that even after he got sober and he'd been sober for many years, he still struggled with anger. He told me about actually taking a swing at a kid on a golf course who was trying to play through. He just snapped and the police came and he was sentenced to go to an anger management class. And he said to me, I think you should come with me to the anger management class. And I did. I went with him to the anger management class. And it helped a little bit. I learned some things. My wife, actually, at the time, my wife, she went as well. But something far more profound happened when Doug invited me that fall to go duck hunting with him. I'd never been hunting before. I didn't grow up hunting. Uh, My dad, my grandpa, my grandfathers, they were not outdoorsy people. They, they didn't hunt. And I was intrigued when Doug invited me to go. And, you know, I thought probably, oh, yeah, we're going to go out. Like, he'll pick me up and we'll go. I don't know, you duck hunt, you go sit in a duck blind and, and then maybe you shoot some ducks and then you go home. Well, no. Doug had a cabin on the far north side of Lake of the Woods in Ontario, a super remote place. And so this is like 1999, I suppose, that we went. And Doug, I, Doug picked me up. He had his two dogs. This is a, another duck hunt of mine, but gives you a sense of 
what it's like. He picked me up and we drove six hours to Baudette, Minnesota, and we then drove, we dropped the dogs off and we, uh, at his uncle's place, and we drove into Canada where we bought our hunting licenses, our remote border crossing permits, and another permit so that we could carry firearms across an international border at the post office, and then we bought some Cuban cigars too, back when, <laughs> back when you, could only, you couldn't get those, you know. And the next day, we loaded up a huge 25-foot sportcraft boat, and, we, and he piloted that boat down the Rainy River and across what's called Big Water, which is the big part of Lake of the Woods. It's maybe where some of you have gone to go ice fishing and stuff like that. And we went through that huge, you know, crashing waves in this big boat. And then we get to north of Big Water into a part of Lake of the Woods that is basically a flooded swamp. Lake of the Woods is the remnant of a massive lake, Agassiz, that was left over by the retreat of the Wisconsin Glacier. And it's a, it was an enormous wetland that was uh, flooded when a dam was built in Ely. And it still is a really shallow lake with rocks everywhere, islands everywhere, uh, and it's an incredible complex maze of rocky outcroppings and islands and stuff like that. Um, I had never been anywhere like that before. We pull up to Doug's cabin, which is a, like a wooden log cabin on a big granite rock. That's all it was. And we unloaded the boat, and he started up the generator... Uh, and opened up the refrigerator, which was all on like natural gas that had been delivered up there. And we started to uh, pull all his duck decoys and boats and everything out. And this, I knew right then, I was in way over my head. This was, this was not what I had expected it to be. We were in the middle of nowhere. And then we went out scouting for ducks, and the next morning he said, okay, we're going to wake up at 4, we'll be in the duck boat by 4.30, and then we have a two-hour, you know, hour and a half drive on the duck boat to get to this one bay where we want to hunt. So that was day one. And then we get back, take a nap, eat a little lunch, and at 4 in the afternoon or 3 in the afternoon, we're back in the duck boats, and out we go again and then come home in the dark. On the third day, we were coming home from our last hunt, and the weather turned as it does. We were in, we're in a little duck boat, an Alumacraft duck boat. He has two motors on the back. I said, why do you have two motors on the back? He's like, because if the first one fails, we need to have a backup. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no, there's, this is pre-cell phone. Doug doesn't have a GPS. He is navigating by his memory. To me, I'm sitting in the front of the boat, on the floor of the boat, with my back against the bench and his two black labs on either side of me. And I'm holding a million candlewatt spotlight that's hooked up to a car battery that once in a while he will say, Fla flash it at 11 o'clock, 
flash it at two o'clock because he just wants to get a sense of where we are in the pitch dark to try to remember what island we're going around and where his cabin is relative to the island that we're going around. But he's like, don't leave it on or I'll lose my night vision. I can't lose. Just flash it on and flash it off. So we're doing this and suddenly it starts to snow. The wind is coming sideways. Waves are crashing over the edge of, over the gunnels of the boat. Onto my lap. The dogs are next to me shivering. And we're going, if you've ever been in a boat and you know the sound of the propeller when it cavitates, that's when it's basically has no water. It's just, it gets into the air and it's trying to, you know, the water circulates through the, the outboard motor to keep it cool. And when air gets in there, it makes an ugly sound. And we're doing this and I'm freaking out. <laughs> I'm freaking out. Doug pulls into a bay where we have a little shelter from the wind. And he says to me, we're lost. And we don't have much gas left. I think I know where we are. I'm going to take one more crack at getting us back to the cabin. If I can't get us back to the cabin, we will have to spend the night. We'll have to beach the boat and spend the night on an island, and then somehow try to figure out where we are. And there's nobody up there. Like, there's no cell phone. There's no people to flag down. Nothing. And then we'll figure it out in the light of day, at least. We'll have a sense of where we are. And he turned the boat back out into the storm, and off we went. And I have a very vivid memory of thinking to myself, I can either panic or I can be at peace. Because there's nothing I can do. I can't help Doug figure out where his cabin is. I can't make more gas appear for the outboard motor. Uh, I can't make the storm stop. I can just choose to be at peace in this particular situation as overwhelming as this situation is. I have this vivid, like visceral bodily memory of making that choice when Doug pulled back out. And like knowing that me freaking out was not going to help me or Doug or the situation in any way. And that peace did come over me. Uh, and it changed me. What I experienced is a sense of the sublime. That's probably a word you've heard before. It's a bit difficult to define. Uh, but the sublime is an experience of being overwhelmed, but also paradoxically at peace. The sublime is a moment when you feel compelled by something that's uh, dangerous, but also something you can't overcome. And so you have no choice in the face of the sublime, mostly except to accept it and try to find peace within it. Uh, 
The, the sublime has been written about and discussed for 2,000 years. The first philosopher who talked about the sublime is called Longinus. It's, it's an anonymous philosophical treatise that was discovered, rediscovered in the Middle Ages, and it's dated to probably the first century, around the time that Jesus lived. Uh, and this name Longinus has been attached to it, even though it's not named. Uh, the author is not named in anywhere. But you can see uh, what Longinus wrote there, for our soul is raised out of nature through the truly sublime, sways with the high spirits, and in, is filled with proud joy, as if it itself had created what it hears. Well, the next uh, philosopher to discuss the sublime, we have to jump ahead to the Enlightenment and Edmund Burke, which is probably a name you've heard before. He was not only a famous philosopher, he was uh, a member of parliament and was a great English aristocrat. And he wrote about the sublime primarily regarding works of art and literature and how sometimes great works of art and literature can also fill you with this experience that you're being overwhelmed by something beautiful that is almost beyond words. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. Think about that for a moment, if you will. Your own experience. Has there ever been a time when you have been confronted with danger and felt overwhelmed and in the wake of that, after that, you've experienced some sense of peace, that you survived this moment of danger. Burke says, and this is Burke's writing about aesthetics and literature and art, but he says where this mostly happens is in nature. It mostly happens in nature. When you're climbing a mountain, he says, or when you're trapped in a terrible thunderstorm or something like that. And then Immanuel Kant, who's one of the greatest philosophers of all time, he wrote also about the sublime. Whereas the beautiful is limited, the sublime is limitless. So that the mind in the presence of the sublime, attempting to imagine what it cannot, has pain in the failure, but pleasure in contemplating the immensity of the attempt. Here's what Kant said about the sublime and how it's different than the beautiful. In the sublime, when you're confronted with something immense and extraordinary, with even the whiff of danger, uh, you, you have, two things happen to human beings, according to Immanuel Kant. On the one hand, you think to yourself, I'm better than nature because I can reflect on this, what's happening. I can think about it. I'm a rational being. But on the other hand, 
you'll also realize that physically, although your mind may be greater than nature, and he's a man of the enlightenment, so he would say that, your body is still uh, unable to overcome the danger of nature. You are still at nature's whims in a moment of the sublime. Uh, now, let's think about the time when Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant were writing these things. The Enlightenment, which, okay, let's just think about like the genesis of Lutheranism. Martin Luther was a man of the Enlightenment. He was an early man of the Enlightenment. In fact, in some ways, you know, he was one of the people who lit the match that really got the Enlightenment going. The Enlightenment was about rationality and the mind. Martin Luther was not a mystic. Martin Luther was a theologian. He wrote treatises, right, to convince people to change their minds. And all of Protestantism, I, you know, my, I come from the tradition of John Calvin, who came, you know, he was just a few years after Luther and did very similar things in uh, Geneva that Luther had done in Germany. He wrote long, long, long works of systematic theology. He wasn't a guy who was spending a lot of uh, quiet time in a monastery praying and hoping that the Spirit of God would um, ent enter him, enter his soul and change him. He was a kind of guy who sat in a library and wrote books saying, we're getting the theology wrong, here's how we're going to get the theology right. Now, think about why they would be writing stuff like this and why they would be pursuing this course of change as opposed to some kind of more uh, mystical type of change. Because in the Enlightenment, what was happening was in the, uh, the human mind was seen as the crown of all creation. The most important element in the cosmos beneath God was the human mind the individual human mind. And this is, in a lot of ways, why Luther and Calvin and others broke away from the uh, Roman Catholic Church. I mean, what Luther did, one of the things that Luther did that was so dramatic and completely unheard of in the Catholic Church was Luther translated the Bible into vernacular German so that you and I, normal, everyday people, could read it. Think about that. For the first 1,500 years of Christianity, you would not have had a Bible in your home. That would have been unheard of. You went to church to hear the Bible. In a lot of medieval towns, the Bible was the single most important and valuable object in that town. In many medieval villages, the Bible was encrusted with jewels, you know, hand, obviously handwritten, like hand transcribed with paintings and illuminations inside of it and chained to the pulpit because it was so valuable. So it wouldn't get stolen. Chained to the pulpit. One in a town. So you can see why the Pope freaked out 
When Luther's like, everybody gets a Bible. A Bible, for, it's like Oprah, you know. You get a Bible, and you get a Bible, and you get a Bible. And now how many Bibles do you have in your house? Per person, how many Bibles do you have? Now, I mean, I, you know, I have, have probably more than the average per capita, but I bet you have more than one Bible per person in your house. We're like drowning in Bibles. So it was this, this revolution that is taking place is rocking the foundations of Western civilization. And Immanuel Kant and Edmund Burke are both preeminent philosophers of the Enlightenment, of this era. But what Kant is saying, actually, and Burke and Kant both are saying something like, there's, but there's also something more. There's something beyond the rational. There is some sense that human beings have that uh, we can't just figure everything out. Not everything is figureoutable. There are some things that are beyond our ability to reason and use our rationality. And this, they, this is what they name the sublime. And they often connect it to religion. There is something that happens in our religious sense as human beings that's beyond our ability to explain and to write books about. And that's the sublime. Now, just as a kind of a little uh, side note, at the same time, these guys, in some ways, what they're writing is a little bit like a minority opinion in Enlightenment philosophy. Because they're like, yeah, 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 the human mind, rationality, that's where it's at. We're, like, we're moving away from the medieval, the Dark Ages and the medieval period where, um, you know, of angels and demons and all sorts of supernatural forces. And it's more of like, what can we think about and, and reason about and rationalize about? But let's also remember there are certain things we can't just reason about. A similar thing was happening in art. This is a famous uh, romantic uh, romance. Uh, it's called A Horse is Frightened by a Lion. And it's kind of an early romantic painting. I'm, I'll show you a couple more here. You've maybe been to museums and seen romantic artwork like this, or you remember it from a, some art history class you took. In the, in the romantic period of painting, one of the themes was nature is scary. So again, while everything else in the world is moving toward rationality, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, the kind of things that we're, you know, the, the Martin Luther, John Calvin, this kind of stuff. There was also like these painters saying, yeah, but not everything, like there are things that are scary and overwhelming to the human reason. And for instance, a storm at sea. The sea has always been, I mean, this goes back, right? We hear about it a lot in the Old Testament. And then we even see it in the New Testament with Jesus calming the storm. Being on the water is a terrifying experience for human beings when things go sideways. And this painting is one that captures this. And then here's a painting which is in that kind of a late romantic painting. And it's based on... Um, the depiction of hell 
in Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. But again, it's, it's meant to convey this sense of there are things in the world that are beyond us and beyond our ability to reason that are a bit dangerous. And though they're dangerous, they, um, they're also compelling. I want to read a quote along these lines from C.S. Lewis. Well, I'll tell you the story of how C.S. Lewis describes it. C.S. Lewis is compelled by this kind of thinking and by the thinker I'm about to introduce you to. Um, He says, here's what the sublime is like. It's like if somebody told you there's a tiger in the next room, you'd be like, yeah, not interested. No, literally no interest in going to the next room and confronting that tiger. He's like, that's not sublime. That's just danger. If somebody tells you there's a ghost in the next room, oh, the hair on the back of your neck might stand up a little bit, and you might have a little sense, that's a little dangerous. But also, you might think, Can I, I just want a little peek. I mean a ghost. I want to check that out. That, C.S. Lewis says, is the sublime. Something that's dangerous but compelling. Dangerous but compelling. Maybe like God. This word... Paul uses it 21 times in his letters in the New Testament. Mysterion, we translate it mystery. I'm not going to read the quote from Ephesians, but you can see there just in, at the beginning of Ephesians 3 how Paul uses it three times. He relies on this term mystery a lot. Mystery was a very common term in first century religion. Many of the religions of in the ancient Roman Empire were mystery cults. You would be initiated into a mysterious secret uh, uh, rites and rituals. It's a little bit like how those of us who aren't Masons sometimes think about the Masonic rites. They're secret, right? They're hidden. Or the ways that uh, our Mormon friends uh, often worship. It's all very hidden and secretive. They don't really talk about it. This is how a lot of the religion in the early uh, in, in the Roman Empire was, and in the early church, most outside observers considered Christianity to be a new mystery cult that spun off of Judaism. So Paul uses this a lot, but he always is spinning the meaning from how people were using it in the day. And that leads me to this thinker, a Lutheran theologian. Rudolf Otto. Otto grew up, as you can see, he was born in the late 19th century, and he grew up in a very pious Lutheran home, very strict Lutheran home. Um, His dad was a a blue-collar guy, laborer, but they sent Rudolf to um, the best schools. He did, in, in Germany, when you do a PhD, you basically have to do two dissertations, He did his first one on Martin Luther and his second one on Immanuel Kant. And then he became a professor 
1911 and 1912, Rudolf Otto, a German theologian, went around the world. Think about that, in 1911, doing that. He went all the way around the world, visiting religious communities of different religions. He says that when he was in a synagogue in Morocco, he had an epiphany that at the very core of all religion is an experience of the holy. That you have an experience of the sacred or the holy. And that's uniquely religious. Nothing else in your experience. Not philosophy, not art, not science. Nothing else in human experience gives you that same kind of experience of the holy. And he got back to Germany after this trip, and he wrote this book, which became one of the greatest uh, best-selling theological works of the 20th century, The Idea of the Holy. What, one of the things he does right at the beginning of the book is he says, holy, we ha- ho- the word holy doesn't mean anymore what it's supposed to mean. When people say, you really live a holy life, they mean, they mean it in like a moral, eth- moral, ethical way. So he said, I need to come up with something, a different word than holy. So he made up, a, he coined a new term. And that term is numinous. The Latin, he said, he says in the book, if you can take the word omen and make an adjective ominous, then I can take the Latin word numen, which means divine or God, and I'm just going to call it numinous. Because, you know, this is obviously what theologians, philosophers do sometimes. They make up new words because they feel like the words that are available to them have kind of already been used. And people bring to them, you know, all their own biases into the reading of a word. So he's like, well, let's just come up with a new word. So he comes up with this word numinous. And he takes this, he makes this Latin phrase the core of everything that he's writing about. The mysterium tremendum et fascinans. That is, the mystery of God that is both terrifying and fascinating. This is, what, this is why C.S. Lewis came up with this analogy of the ghost in the room, in the room next door when reading Rudolf Otto in trying to describe what this whole thing is all about. What happens, according to Otto, when we're confronted with the mysterium tremendum, or the sublime, is we're reminded of this, our feeling of creatureliness. We're reminded that we're creatures, and that there's a creator who's greater than we are. That is the core of the religious experience, according to Rudolf Otto. Now, Otto's theology and philosophy has been relatively, unfortunately, forgotten of late. And the reason I bring it up to you is because I've been thinking a lot about Otto as I've been thinking about my own experiences in the outdoors and nature. If you come to church tomorrow morning, you'll hear a little bit 
of my journey as told through the story of my three dogs. Um, and my journey the last 15 years has been rough, rough, uh, through personal stuff that's gone sideways for me. And not just when Doug took me out hunting that, on that first duck hunt, but ever since then, going out and being in nature is where I've gone to experience the mysterium tremendum, to experience the sublime, to feel like I am a creature and I'm overwhelmed by the power of nature and the God who implicitly we think create, you know, that I believe created all of this and put me in it. So this is now where I've gone to continue to remind myself of this religious sense. I was talking uh, to one of you who was just in Europe, um, and I was just in uh, Rome. Jeff was talking about that. I lead some tours over there. And, you know, it's, we have a, if you've been to a cathedral in Europe, you know that the architects of those cathedrals meant to convey in architectural form this, this mysterium tremendum, this terrifying, overwhelming, fascinating mystery of God. We come in, in the American, you know, tradition, whether we're Lutheran or whatever, we're, we're all really in the legacy of the Puritans who saw the excesses of the Catholic Church and said, we're going to get rid of all of that. All of the symbols, we're going to get rid of all the gold ceilings, the statues. We're not going to pray through any saints. It's you and God. This is, this is the, that, that's the tradition I come from. The tradition I come from, Congregationalists, we would be like, no, no, no stained glass. In fact, when they were building, when my grandparents, who were charter members of the church I grew up at, were building the church, there was a debate about whether or not to have a cross. Because a cross is a symbol that gets between you and God. You don't need, in, the, in the old Congregationalist meeting houses in New England, no cross, no symbols clapboard, right? And they don't even call it a sanctuary. It's a meeting house because you'd have church in there on Sunday, but then on Monday, the city council would have their meeting in there too, in the New England meeting house. And that's, so that's the, the, we, the American experience of God is primarily an imminent experience of God. We pray to the God who is right here with us at all times. God is as close as anyone could ever be. And there is something awesome and beautiful about that. That was, a, that was an important corrective to the excesses of the Catholic Church. For Luther to translate the Bible into German and give it to people and be like, if you can read, you can read the Bible. You don't need to know Latin, and you don't need the priest to tell you what it means. You get a Bible. That was an important corrective to the excesses of the Catholic Church. But maybe, possibly, that corrective went too far, and we lost some of the terrifying mystery of God in all of the imminence of American Christianity. And so, 
my suggestion to you is that one of the places where we can once again experience the tremendous, fascinating mystery of God is in the outdoors. Not just on a duck hunt, but I'll show you some other examples. Oh, well, I want to show you this because it's probably something that you all know. Um, But this is, you maybe have heard of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, people who claim no religious affiliation. It's the fastest growing group in the American religious landscape in every generation. I mean, you can see, I mean, I, I don't know how, yeah, you can see that, I guess. The greatest generation, the yellow dots, the the yellow dash line at the bottom. Even among the greatest generation, that line is going up, the number of nuns. But you can see among millennials, that was 2018, and I think it's at like 33%. The most recent survey of millennials, 39 to 45% of millennials have no religious affiliation. They're nuns. They're not in any way engaged with organized religion. And what do you think it's happening with Gen Z? That's with my kids, some of your kids, even more. And we know, we, we talk, I'm sure you all talk about it in the ELCA, churches are closing, numbers are going down, it's happening in the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet, My suggestion to you is that human beings, if Rudolf Otto was right, human beings have this implicit desire to have an experience of the mystery of the divine. To put themselves into a situation where they feel overwhelmed by something bigger than themselves. When maybe the phones don't work anymore, right? Maybe people can't get in touch with you. Maybe you're portaging a canoe in the boundary waters. Yeah. Every year, every year I go to the boundary waters for that reason, so that I can have this experience of being overwhelmed away from my phone. I mean, there's nothing more imminent than the phone, you know what I mean? It's a foot and a half away from you at all times. Boom, how many times a day do they say a kid touches, touches his or her phone 2,700 times per day? Think about that. That's imminent. That's like the definition of imminent. <laughs> Something that's right there you can touch all the time, all the time. Until you leave your phone in the car when you go to the Boundary Waters. and there's no cell reception. And you look at old paper maps and try to figure out if the campsite is on that island or that island and where the portage is. There's Crosby in the middle of that canoe. You'll get to meet him tomorrow if you come to church. And that's my son. That's the first year I took him to the Boundary Waters when he was 14. What do you think that feeling on his face is? You think that's the sublime? 
Do you think that's the feeling of being overwhelmed? Like maybe I'm in over my head on this deal? He's not thinking about his phone, right? He's not thinking about if his snap streaks are valid. That's one thing you got to do if you're taking a kid to the boundary waters. You got to like be like, you're going to lose all your Snapchat streaks. Many of you in the room have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of you do. <laughs> going to lose your snap streaks. You're going to be overwhelmed. I take pastors every year into the Boundary Waters. And pastors live, for the most part, pastors, you know, live a pretty comfortable life. Yeah? So, so. <laughs> and I say, you're going to be uncomfortable. Your feet will be wet for one straight week. Your feet will never be dry. You need to be prepared for that. If it starts pouring rain, we paddle in the rain. Uh, I don't care what rain gear you have, you will be wet and you will be cold. You will not sleep well because there will be a rock under your sleeping pad. There's no tent pads in the boundary waters that don't have rocks. You'll be overwhelmed. And sure enough, that's exactly, I can tell you, the pastors that I took to the boundary waters this year by the third night of the camp, around the campfire, they were ready to admit that after the first night, they were like, yeah, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can paddle six hours a day. I don't think I can go without a shower, without, you know, I don't know, I don't think I'm ready to drink lake water, you know, all the stuff we do in the boundary waters. But by the third day, of course, they've, made, they've somehow gotten over that. And they've been able to reconcile the overwhelmingness of being in nature. Now, it's harder and harder to find places like this. Uh, it's harder and harder to find places that aren't, you know, that are out of reach of cell towers we have to venture further and further out to get um, to places like this. And that photo, I just will leave that photo up to give you a sense of just that kind of overwhelmingness. Of, that was a kind of a crazy night of a paddle and that we got blown around by a storm and my dog cut his leg and it was one of those days where we thought, well, I don't know if this was the best choice, but here we are, like we have to figure this out. I've been writing a lot about this, and um, this title of this talk, The God of Wild Places, that Jeff so graciously invited me to give, is based on the writing that I've been doing. And I've been trying to figure out the lessons that I've learned in the outdoors, and that's what I want to leave you with today before we have maybe some time for some Q&A or conversation about some of these ideas. One of the things that I've learned by immersing myself in these, uh, in these environments is that all things are connected. Everything is entangled. It's like that last image of the tree with the roots. There's, um, 
my family has some property in central Minnesota and we had a bunch of it logged off because we had a tornado wipe out a ton of trees in 1973 and then what grew back in, in the place of these huge majestic white pines is aspen. That's what grows back, aspen. And what you learn as you figure out a little bit about aspen, not only is it like a 40-year-old aspen, exactly what the paper mills up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota want, because that's what they turn into matches and, and toothpicks and, and paper, but also that if you, we had like 40 acres of aspen logged, and that's considered a single organism. Every one of those aspen trees has the same DNA as every other aspen tree. They're one organism with an incredibly complex and entangled root structure. And now what happens immediately after logging them off is they start growing back up again. They're nothing like the white and red pines that were blown down by the tornado in 1973. It's, it's at first blush not a beautiful forest. But the more you learn about it and realize about this organism and these entangled roots and all of the wildlife who thrive in an aspen grove, you start to see the beauty, the unexpected beauty and how the entanglement of the root structure makes this an incredibly resilient organism. And it's something I find in nature. You know, you don't see right angles in nature. It's chaotic, uh, it's messy. Another thing that's messy about nature that you can't help but seeing, those of us who hunt know this, is the predator-prey relationship. I think a lot about the predator-prey relationship, being that I'm an apex predator, we're all apex predators in here. Um, And I'll chase prey, like today, hopefully some geese, fingers crossed. Some Canada geese. They, I know they seem like predators when they hiss at you on the golf course, but they're really a prey animal. Or, these, or pheasants. I've been chasing pheasants the last couple days. Pheasants are wily prey animals. They, what they do is they try to escape predators. And we're all in this cycle of predation that then you think, even though we're an apex predator as human beings, there are things out to get us too. Because cancer and COVID-19, these are our predators coming after us. We all are in this cycle, which of course leads to another thing that when you hunt a lot, you come in contact with a lot, and that's death. It's something I wish when I was a pastor, I wish I had preached more about it. Nobody wants to hear about death. I mean, that, that's a problem. It's like, it's... It's not great for uh, growing your congregation, preaching about death. But I'll leave you with this. I will never forget the first deer that I killed. I'll never forget where I was sitting. A lot of us who've deer hunted, maybe you have the same experience. I'll never forget watching the deer expire in front of me and the emotions that I felt, and the look of panic in her eyes, terror in her eyes as she was dying. It's not a great experience. 
It's an important experience, but not a great experience. And only a few years after that deer died in front of me, I took my dad to the hospital and he died. And the, the look in his eyes was the same. A look of terror and panic. He did not know what was happening. He did not want to die. He was not prepared for it. Death, of course, is inevitable for all of us. It should be core to what we think about and talk about in church. Death is one of those experiences that is terrifying, maybe a little bit fascinating, but that is numinous, that is overwhelming, that is sublime, just exactly what these philosophers and theologians I've mentioned today were talking about. That is how death is over all of us. It is something that awaits us that we cannot control. And yet, we've almost completely eliminated death and mortality from modern life. Our ancestors, for 100,000 years, Homo sapiens saw dead people on a regular basis. Death was a part of life. Only very recently have we sequestered death off. Now, those of us who are pastors, we're often with people as they're dying. But most of us, we don't see it. And I think it's our own loss. Maybe you've seen um, paintings from the Renaissance of like a still life painting where there's maybe like a brace of pheasants hanging and there's a shelf and there's some flowers in a vase and then what? A skull. You've seen a painting like this before? The skull is there because it goes back to ancient Stoic philosophy and a phrase from ancient Stoic philosophy, remember your mortality. This is why those paintings have this skull. And, and some people would have a skull on a shelf in their house. Remember your mortality. Because the idea in Stoic philosophy is if you're aware of your mortality, you will live today to its fullest. And I just think that being in the outdoors and being in places like this that maybe have a little whiff of danger that have a hint of the sublime, or, or being a hunter, or being an angler, or taking hikes, and being out in nature, and seeing the messiness, and the chaos, and the death that are part of nature can all remind us of the greatness of God, the promise of Christianity, the reality of death, and the promise of life. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony, so much. Um, I just want you to know that pastors live a very hard, mm. terrible life, and I, I and I'm, I'm taking that personally. No, that, it's uh, true. It's that true. Somehow we're you know we're soft. No, no, um, yeah, 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 yeah,
Um, it's uh, been great to have you with us and, and for the conversation. And what we wanted to do, I know this is always not always easy, but we also want to allow, you may have some thoughts, some things that are kind of in your head that are just kind of you're thinking about that you might want to ask Tony. And one of the great things about bringing a, a guest theologian is we get to have some conversation. Yeah, they don't even have to be questions. They could just be your own reflections, thoughts, or, yeah, yeah. insights, so, yeah. And I, I always hate this part because I always go, would anybody like to? And you always kind of look and you go, oh, my goodness. You so, should have planted. Oh, look, there's already a hand. Hey, there's one I see a hand. I see that hand. So, Joan, we're gonna, I'm just going to play Phil Donahue. I know, but uh, it's for the recording. This is not really a theological question, but can you finish the story of your Wisconsin duck hunting trip? <laughs> of, oh, of the in Lake of the Woods, the duck hunting trip, we made it back. <laughs> but I will let me tell you this: this is so sad. The next year, the same thing happened. I went a different week with Doug, and somebody else went. Uh, he took another guy later in the season, and the same thing happened. They didn't run out of gas. They had. They had um, a wave come over the side of the boat and, and flip the boat. So they, um, they the, the, you know, everything sank to the bottom of the lake. The boat, the guns, the, you know, everything in the boat. They, they had two guys and two dogs swam to the shore and spent the night in a blizzard, like huddled up, the four of them. In the morning, they figured out where they were, and they were not too far from Doug's uh, cabin. So they walked along this one island till they were across, I don't know, the channel is maybe 300 yards across. And Doug stripped down and swam across and got another boat and brought back over and picked up the dogs and the guy, the other guy. Okay, you think it gets worse? They're like, that's it, we're out. We're out of here. They close up the cabin for the winter. Um, put out, you know, mouse poison, lock everything up, get on the big boat, the big sport craft, 27-footer, and start heading back south to get back to Baudette, Minnesota, so they can drive home. But the waves on the big lake were so huge, and they were splashing up over the bow of the boat, and then ice was forming on the windshield of the boat, and they couldn't, it was too dangerous. So they turn back, they go back to the cabin. I can't believe I'm telling you this story open up the cabin, one of his dogs eats a box of mouse poison, dies in his arms. So, I mean, I didn't tell that story in the, in the talk because it didn't happen to me, but again, it, it, it's yet another, you know, if, I, if Doug were here, and he's still one of my dearest friends, if he were here and, and I were to say to him, like, do you wish you wouldn't have gone that weekend to the cabin? I think he would probably say, no, that's, that was part of hunting in Lake of the Woods. When you, if you're going to immerse yourself that deep into the wilderness, there's just danger is implicit in that experience. Um, so we made it out, but, you know, not everybody does. And, and there's... This stuff does happen when you, when you put yourself in danger. I just think we, I, I, 
you know, I'm, I'm parenting kids. I know a lot of you are parenting kids or grandkids or whatever. I encourage my kids to take risks and we've become a very, very risk-averse culture. I, I was telling Jeff, you know, um, the state of Colorado just passed a law that allows kids to play unsupervised in neighborhood playgrounds. So basically, because people were calling the cops when they would see kids playing in playgrounds unsupervised and saying, these kids are unattended and this is too dangerous. And they pass a law, you can't report your neighbors for letting kids play in a playground. So, I mean, this is just, right? I, we could go on and on. It's, it's just because of the headlines all the time and like scary, scary, scary. And we have to fight it. We have to fight it. I even think that the church can be, again, another conversation I've had with Jeff is like um, the camp, the camp where I became a Christian and the, the church camp that I ran has been closed down by the church in the last five years because they said it's too risky. There's too much danger in, and there's too much liability in our insurance company and blah, 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 blah. And the lawyers in the congregation, blah, blah, blah. And, and in my experience, the best times in ministry, the single greatest trip I ever took with kids in ministry was we went to Colorado. We climbed three 14,000-foot peaks in a day. We rappelled a 500-foot rock face. We skied at A Basin on July 4th. Like, we did crazy stuff for a week. And every one of those kids had an experience of like, wow, being overwhelmed, being exhausted, being a little bit scared. Like, you know, you start backing down over a 500-foot rock face, it's like, yeah, that'll... That'll cause you the, the, the acid to come up in your throat a little bit. <laughs> Whoa, this is crazy. What am I doing? You know, um, But it, it, the church could be a place that facilitates these experiences, especially for adolescents who really need those experiences. Adolescents need it. Religions from time immemorial have put adolescents on vision quests or put them in, you know, young men into combat or whatever it is, because that's what often brings people to life. And we, again, don't, we don't live in a culture that really fosters that so much. One of the things that, um, as you were uh, talking, and, and think of your questions, we'll get back to you. Uh, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And I was thinking uh, to myself about the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and there's that very famous... Uh, passage where I think it's uh, uh, Lucy, one of the, one of the children, yeah. sees the lion, Aslan, yep. who is the, the Christ figure in the book, you know, spoiler alert. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, and, what? And, yeah, I, I never know, made so that sorry. connection. I'm so sorry. And uh, she asks one of the beavers, I think it's Mr. Beaver, Mrs. Beaver, you know, you know they go, oh, there's Aslan, and uh, she goes, is he safe? Yeah. And the, the character's reaction is, Oh, no. Right. He is not safe. Right. Jesus, he is not safe, but he's good. That is such a great connection. I'm getting me, and I get chills a little bit from that. Aslan is a great example of the Mysterium Tremendum at Fascinans, the, the, the mystery of God that is terrifying and fascinating at the same time. And C.S. Lewis, has already said, read Rudolf Otto and appreciated Rudolf Otto's work. 
And Aslan, yeah, is a great example of like, you want to give Aslan a hug, but also Aslan is kind of terrifying, right? C.S. Lewis does a great job in that book of, of depicting God in that way, yeah. So you made a comment about American religion, you know, basically American religious experience in the imminent expression yeah. of God. So one, help me um, flesh out imminent and what that means in the church. And it sounds like maybe that has been a pendulum swing that's gone, perhaps in your mind, too far. Uh, yeah. Maybe the church needs to rediscover. So what would be the opposite of, of You know, in, in Otto's book, and I've had this experience too, if you go to Mass at St. Peter's in Rome and you hear them sing Sanctus, 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 Holy, 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 and it's bouncing, reverberating off these walls. Like the reason that, that these cathedrals were built in, in um, medieval and Renaissance uh, Europe well, even going back to late, like late antiquity, if you, I was in, um, I got to see one of my like bucket list items was going to Istanbul and got to go inside the Hagia Sophia, which was built in like the 600s. Um, they're, they're overwhelming and they're, they were meant by the church that, that architecture had a language, you know, and it was meant to convey something, especially to the illiterate masses people who couldn't even read, but you walk in and it's like those cathedrals are a book. And what is that? What, what's the message of that book? God is the biggest thing around, right? I mean, it's the reason that in those days that the, the Pope or the, the cardinals dress up like the king. Like, yeah, the king, the king's powerful. We're also powerful. You know, the king like has the terrestrial authority. We have the celestial authority. Um, and I mean, that's not this, this architecture of this room is not meant to inspire majesty and awe. It's not, it's meant to, um, facilitate relationship between people. It's a difference between a choir in a cathedral singing Sanctus, 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 and a praise band singing like uh, a song about like how close I am to Jesus. And neither is wrong. They're both part of Christianity, right? I mean, it, the, one of the great revolutionary things about Christianity in the very early church was God actually cares about you. Cares about you individually. Like Jesus came because God actually cares about you as an individual human being. That was unheard of to Romans. Like, they didn't think, uh, Zeus really cares about me. <laughs> you know, I'm, no, you would, like, make sacrifices to Zeus so that bad stuff wouldn't happen to you. But it was a purely transactional experience. And then along comes Christianity. It's like, actually, Yahweh really cares about you personally. So you can see the imminence that's part of it. Um, but you can also see, like, there's also a part of, like, Yahweh is terrifying. And we read about that in the Hebrew Bible all the time, the fear of the Lord and the fear of the Lord's wrath. And Otto talks about that as being like, that's, that's the terrifying mystery of God, is that wrath, not in like God's angry with you, but th that was, the, that was the, the ancient Israelites' way of articulating, this is, this is scary, how big and powerful God is. And we, so we're going to call it God's wrath or whatever. 
Um, and that's the fear of the Lord, is like acknowledging God's awesomeness. Awe in the like AWE, like God provokes awe in us. That's how amazing God is. So I wonder in American religion how we might, we're not going to change this room into a cathedral, right? We don't build cathedrals anymore. We build billion-dollar NFL stadiums. That's what we build now. So then how do, we, how do we put in conversation the imminence of our worship that we'll have in here tomorrow? And trust me, I already said to you, like, when I preach tomorrow, I want to be as close to people as possible. I don't want to be up in some pulpit with a Bible chain to it, you know? I want to be like in the, you know. Um, but then maybe it's facilitating these experiences of, to remind ourselves that God is also awesome. Awe-inspiring, awe, awe awe-provoking by getting out there and, you know, putting ourselves out in nature. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah. Any, any other insights, questions, things that folks want to... Yeah, please. Thank you. It's been very interesting for me to listen to what you're saying. Uh, you've talked about the apex predator concept. Have you ever been in any of your outdoor experiences where you have not felt like the apex predator? Where you have felt that something was looking at you rather than you looking at something? Mm. That as you're portaging the canoe and you're looking down at the ground and you're seeing the bear tracks, or you're seeing the wolf tracks. And how do you relate in that kind of a situation with what you talked about earlier about being the apex predator? And how do you deal with that? That's a great question. I've never, I have not yet had an experience where I've come face to face with another mammal who could kill me. Um, that's not to say I have not felt, I've felt in danger, particularly in the boundary waters. Um, I make it very clear to the people I take that this is an inherently dangerous endeavor, what we're doing. And yeah, of course, I've seen bear tracks, wolf tracks. We pick up wolves on our trail cameras all the time. I probably am a little more afraid of, like, of my dog um, getting in a tussle with a wolf than, in, than myself getting in a tussle with a wolf. Um, but yet, every, I've, been, I've been elk hunting out west, and every year uh, there are elk hunters out west that are mauled by brown bears every, every single year. Some mauled to death. Others, you know, terribly maimed and injured. Uh, I'll just say that, like, every time I go on a trip, I mean, not like uh, pheasant and goose hunting in Iowa necessarily, but if I'm going to the Boundary Waters or if I'm going out west to hunt in the mountains... Um, I will say to my wife, I just am going to say goodbye to you. And I need you to also say goodbye to Crosby, our dog, like if we're going to the Boundary Waters. Because I'm like, if something goes south in the Boundary Waters, I can't, like there's nothing I can do for, you know, to save our dog or, or even necessarily me. And I know I'm friends with some people, like I'm friends with a guy who's a quadriplegic from a fall in the Boundary Waters that he took. Um, and I've known other people who've been 
injured there. So I think I try to keep it, you know, I'm, she doesn't like to hear that, obviously. No spouse wants to hear that. But um, she knows it. And she knows even when I go pheasant hunting, like I'll, next weekend I'll be pheasant hunting with, I don't know, six guys in South Dakota. And anytime I've seen a guy shot um, pretty badly. And anytime you're out there with firearms and dogs and badger holes and, you know, it, that's an in, in, again, another inherently dangerous activity. So um, I've become more and more comfortable putting myself in those situations and, and being realistic with her and with my kids about that. Yeah. Anyone else? Any insights or questions or thoughts? Over here? Oh, I'm sorry. I was saying, like, anyone else? Anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> just, a, just a thought here. Um, I've been learning a lot about a gentleman by the name of Frederick Law Olmsted. Okay. Are you familiar? Yeah, a little bit. So he's a guy who designed Central Park in New York City. And you're talking about the sublime. Yeah. And I kind of feel like it doesn't have to be so scary. Yeah. And so learning about Frederick Law Olmsted and his concept was having parks in every city within 10 miles of everyone that lived in the city mm -hmm. so that they could have this connection with nature. And it's about just touching the leaves and walking yeah. among the trees and feeling that sublime and that wonderful feeling that you get from just being outside. So I guess I just wanted to see no, if you No, I think you're exactly right. Head. I mean, for sure. And I'm glad you bring that up because n not everybody is going to, you know, uh, go spend a week in the Boundary Waters off the grid or whatever. There are ways that, I mean, it's, it's another thing that I'm writing about in, in my next book, and that's just that sense of place um, that we've probably all got a place that we can go back to. Maybe it was like the farm that our great-grandparents homesteaded for the, you know, or whatever, um, um, or a special place that we went with our parents to a, some lake resort when we were a kid or something. But this sense of place of going back and having a touch point of the same place, um, I think is super important for us. Um, and often those are in nature. I agree. I mean, I find New York City to be a fairly dehumanizing place. And I can't imagine without Central Park how dehumanizing Manhattan would be. It's really something. What's that? Yeah. No, Central Park's incredible, and um, it, it, it was a great bit of foresight to have it there, and you're right. There are ways any one of us can do it. I mean, we can, I, I, my friend um, who's a great theologian in her own right, Barbara Brown Taylor, writes about, she lives in a little farm in Georgia, and she writes about just like sitting on her back porch and watching squirrels, and that's a big part of her daily meditation. It's just watching squirrels every day. Um, so yeah, that, that's great. You, we, I just think we just need to find it. And we need to also, really, we need to foster it in our young people 
And I mean, when my son told me after our first Boundary Waters trip, I want to go with you every year. Um, that was, I was like, that's awesome to hear because um, mainly he's looking at his phone. <laughs> you know, that's not, he does, he does other stuff. He's a great kid. But the, you know, the phone is, the phone, the phone worries me terribly. Yeah. Uh, thank you so yeah. much uh, for being with us today. And uh, I'm going to assume that you're going to enjoy some hospitality course, out there as well. Of course. And yeah. so if you have any, uh, you want to just come up Popcorn and, and, and chat and the like, uh, please do. And uh, one more time, just a hand, uh, round of applause. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. And if you'd uh, like to uh, join Tony in the Boundary Waters or go to Italy with him, I'm sure he'd be glad to, <laughs> love to have talk you. to you yeah, about it. You. Um, and uh, if, if, if it uh, fits in your schedule and you're available, of course, Tony will be with us tomorrow morning as well, 8.30 and 10.30. And then we're having chili and cinnamon rolls. Is that a thing? Is that an Iowa thing, chili and cinnamon rolls? Well, I was told it was a thing, right? I no, was told they're, all was like, a they're thing. all like, no. I was told it was a thing, so we're going with it. It's a thing. <laughs> and we're going to have chili and uh, cinnamon rolls at 11.30 and then followed uh, 12.15 with kind of a recap and, and uh, just kind of a final time with Tony. So God bless you. Thanks for being with us. Um, good luck finding the sublime, whether it's in a beautiful park or being overwhelmed by the wonder of nature, standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon or looking out towards the water or standing by a lake or whether it's in the midst of uh, really uh, the more extreme and uh, where we encounter that terror and yet that wonder of God. So God bless you. Thanks again, Tony. Thanks. Have a good afternoon.